Good to see you all this morning. It's fun to be back with the family of God. And as I look around, I see some new faces. So uh, if today is your first visit, please know that you're welcome. My name is Gerald. I'm one of the elders here, and it's a, a joy and a privilege to be here together with you this morning. So we trust that Grace Fullerton will feel like home to you, that you will hear uh, the word of Christ this morning, that it would bring you hope, it would uh, encourage you in your walk with the Lord, and that uh, in the end, as you leave here today, that you, like us, would leave here having encountered God, having uh, been encouraged by His Word, and uh, having been built up and, and better equipped for the work that He has for you to do. So to that end, let me ask a question. Do you know your calling? How many of you know what your calling in life is? So we can, we can talk about this in ways that... Uh, that help us understand that it's something that we feel summoned to do, right? Um, sometimes we get this notice in the mail and we get called to jury duty. We're, we're summoned to that. Sometimes we think about uh, something that we are particularly good at, like, man, I, I'm called to be a teacher or I'm called to be a policeman or whatever the case might be. We, we talk about calling in those ways. Um, in another way of looking at it. You know, we might go to a ball game and, and hear someone sing a rousing rendition of the national anthem, but find out that they're actually an accountant. And we look and we listen and we go, wow, I wonder if she might have missed her calling, right? Because she did so good at that other thing. So there, there, there are a number of ways that we can talk about this idea of a calling. And so I asked the question, do you know what your calling is? Do you understand what that is? Some of us maybe can say, yeah, I think I understand what my calling in life is. Some of you, some of us may have no idea. And that's okay. Because God has a lot to say about this idea of a calling. And in our passage today, we're actually going to hear what he has to say, at least one aspect of what that calling is for us. So open your Bibles and let's look at 1 Peter chapter 3. That'll be our text for today. 1 Peter chapter 3. And uh, so, Lord willing, my prayer is, is that if you actually stay awake for the next 30 or 40 minutes or something, by the end of this time together, you'll know what your calling is. At least you'll know what one aspect of that calling looks like in your life. So that's good news. So today we look at it more closely and we'll examine this idea of, of calling. And for you note takers, we have two primary questions that we'll be uh, looking at today. And that is... To what is it that I've been called? We'll look at that question and seek to find an answer to that. To what have I been called? And then secondly, we'll look at this question. Why should I strive to fulfill this calling? So to what have I been called? And why should I strive to fulfill this calling? So today's text is from 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, beginning at verse 8. And before we turn there and read that, let's talk a little bit about what Peter has already told us along the lines of a calling. So in today's passage, Peter, Peter's going to talk more specifically about a calling. He's going to help us understand what that should look like. And he's, he's introduced this concept to us earlier in the book. If you've been with us throughout this preaching series, you've heard, uh, you've heard chapter 2, verse 9, which says this, "...but you are a chosen race." a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So according to this verse, there's, there's two sides to this calling that Peter is talking about. There's a calling out of, uh, out of this darkness, and it's not a, a literal darkness, right? Um, this darkness that he's talking about is the pervading mindset of the unbelieving world. So we've been called out of that. We've been called out of darkness. And on the other side of that, we've been called to something. Peter says that we've been called into his marvelous light. We've been called into this supernatural, loving, God-centered living that is characterized by this word light. I think that's what the Apostle John was getting at when, when he talked about Jesus saying, and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So this calling comes with a general and overarching obligation. Peter has introduced that to us as well. Look again at verses 14 through 16 of chapter 1. Chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. Say this, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So this one who has called us, this one who has transferred us out of darkness into his light, he is holy, and he commands those he calls to be holy. So this call has inherent in it the obligation of holy living, because the one who called us is holy, and we are called to imitate him in this holiness. We're called to walk in it. And the nature of this call, Peter talked about that right in the opening statements of chapter 1, in verses uh, 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So this calling, this transferring out of darkness into light, He has mediated by causing us to be born again. He causes us to be born again, spiritually, into new life. And He calls us to live a life of holiness in imitation of Him. And this call to live a life of holiness can seem like a hard calling. It can seem like an insurmountable task. If you know the sin that continues to indwell in your heart and in your mind the way that I do, that can seem like an overwhelming task. But the one who has called you has already made you alive together with Christ. That's what Paul says. And he's caused you to be born again. So is he not able then to make you walk in holiness, in fulfillment of this calling? So today's passage, we're going to climb down the ladder of abstraction and understand what it means to live a righteous life, what it means to walk in holy living, to fulfill this call of living a righteous life. We'll get down on the practical level, and Peter will show us a few things of what that looks like within the church, and he'll show us a few things of what that looks like potentially outside the church or within the church, as he calls us to return those who exercise evil against us, to return that with a blessing. So let's look now together at 1 Peter chapter 3 beginning at verse 8. And before we read that, let's pause and let's pray. 
Father, we humble ourselves before you this morning uh, with grateful hearts, Lord. You've called us. You've made us alive together with Christ. You've caused us to be born again. You've transferred us out of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son, into this marvelous light. And you've tasked us with the calling of, of proclaiming your excellencies, of walking in righteousness, of living a holy life. And Lord, we do want to do that. We want to understand this call. We want to fulfill this call. We want to be motivated by you to fulfill it. So we pray now that as we open your word and as we read it, you would by your spirit, that same spirit that has inspired these words, that spirit that has preserved these words over the years, we ask that that spirit would be present among us here today. Ask that you would fill me, Lord, so that I might teach with clarity. Ask that you would fill each one of these, my brothers and sisters gathered here, that your word would land in their hearts through their ears um, with clarity and that it would accomplish all that you intend for it to accomplish among us. We pledge ahead of time to give you the glory and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Peter 3, starting to read at verse 8. Finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So we have been called to bless others. To what have we been called? We've been called to live a holy life, a righteous life that is a blessing to other people. God has a wonderful plan for your life. And this plan requires that you focus on others more than yourself. It requires that you imitate Him and that you become others-focused. You recognize the needs of, those of, of the people around you and you recognize that those needs are of greater importance than your own. And that you seek to steward your life in a way that is a blessing. In other words, you seek to steward your life in a way that imitates Jesus and his righteousness by moving toward people and seeking to be a blessing to them. There's a list of things that Peter gives us here in verse 8 that characterizes that. But before we look at the list, I want us to understand that this is something that everybody who is in Christ is called to. Peter says, finally, all of you. If you remember a few weeks back, we started by looking at um, chapter 2, verse 12, where Peter exhorts us, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And we started talking about what does honorable conduct in an unbelieving world look like? It looked like being submission to our governing authorities. It looked like being in submission to our earthly leaders, to our bosses, slaves to their masters. It looks like wives being in submission to their husbands. And it looks like wives 
I'm sorry, wives being in submission to their husbands and husbands living with their wives in an understanding way. And now he says, all of you have unity of mind, have sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So the mind here is key. He says, have unity of mind. Literally, it's have the same mind among you. And Paul, in other of his letters, he says that we have the mind of Christ. So if you are a believer, you have trusted Jesus and his personal work of salvation as your only means of a right standing with God, you have the mind of Christ. On the heels of that decision to trust and receive Jesus as your Savior, God sent his Holy Spirit to indwell you. And along with that comes the mind of Christ. So what we're being called to here is have one mind among us, and that mind is to be the mind of Christ. We're to be led in unity, that, where, the, where that mind of Christ is dwelling among believers, and where that is in control as opposed to the mind of the flesh, that body of believers is led in unity. For there is one mind making the decisions. There is one mind leading us down the path of righteousness. And that is the one who is the author and the perfecter of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So we're exhorted to have unity of mind. We're exhorted for that because we are one in Christ. We've been singing songs this morning in worship, celebrating the fact that we're children of God. And because of his adopting us into his family, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We have one Father, one Lord, one Savior of all, and there's one Spirit alive and leading inside of each one of us. And that Spirit, when, when He is in complete control of us, will lead us in unity. The second thing that Peter calls us to here in this list is to have sympathy. Literally, it's to feel things together with people. It's the idea of weeping with those who weep, of rejoicing with those who rejoice, even if what we're feeling at the time, personally, because of our own circumstances, is on the other end of that spectrum. So consider your life. Consider this last week as you have gone through life, either with family members, or maybe it's people from your grace group, or maybe it's coworkers. When people have been rejoicing, have you been able to rejoice even if you are in a season of weeping? When people are grieved, by various trials, when they are uh, gripped with grief or sorrow, when they're burdened with something, but you're on the top of the world because you're having a great day, are you able to feel that with them and weep with them because their soul is burdened? That's the kind of thing that we're called to here to live in a life of righteousness. That's our calling. We're called to bless people we're called to be a blessing by having unity of mind and by having sympathy with one another. And you know what it's like to be on the receiving end of somebody who's exercising sympathy towards you. It feels such a blessing to have somebody come alongside and, and identify with you in whatever it is that you're feeling and sit there with you in it, rejoicing with you if you're rejoicing or grieving with you if you're grieving and pointing you to truths from the Word that will minister to you in specific ways right there. That's what it is to have sympathy with one another. It's to feel those things together with one another. We're called to be a blessing to one another in this way. These are things that are to characterize the church, the church for whom Jesus Christ died, the church 
who has been adopted into this family together. The third thing on the list is we're to have brotherly love for one another. It's the opposite of selfishness, really. You see, the essence of sin is the affections of the heart turn inward and we say, I love me more than I love any of you or anything else. And what I say goes. What I want is what I'm going to run after. And I won't be happy until I get it. But when Christ moves in, when he calls us out of that darkness and he transfers us into the light, he now frees the affections of our heart to be what they were intended to be focused where they were intended to be focused, supremely on God. The first and greatest commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And secondly, we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. We know what it's like to love ourselves, right? We spend a lot of time there. We're to love others in that same way. We're to recognize the needs of our brothers and our sisters around us, and we're to to prioritize those needs to where we're willing to get up out of our chair and go meet those needs, to steward whatever resources are available to us, whether it's our time, whether it's our talents, the ability of our hands. Maybe it's our treasure. Maybe we need to get up out of our seat and give monetarily toward meeting somebody's need. That's what it means to have brotherly love. We serve one another out of this idea of brotherly love. That's the righteousness to which every believer is called in Christ. We look around and we see needs. We pray about them. And we allow the Spirit to bring a level of conviction to us. And out of brotherly love, we seek to serve that person or that group of people to meet those needs. How are we doing at that? Think back on your last week. As you examine your Google calendar or however it is that you track your time, does that calendar testify to the fact that you have a burning brotherly love for people around you and that you are prioritizing your time in order to serve them? Are there other things that are providing evidence that you have this burning brotherly love within you that causes you to move toward people and to serve them and to meet their needs. Whether it's here on the corporate level, or maybe it's in the small group level, maybe it's just within your family, in the home. Maybe it's out in the greater community. We're we're moving as a, a body here, as a congregation, at the end of this month. We want to move out and exercise brotherly love here in Grace Fullerton through this idea of love Fullerton. We want to move toward that elementary school and spruce it up, give it a facelift. We want to rub elbows with people in the community as we do that. Um, we Yes, we'll fellowship and we'll work side by side as a congregation and we'll grow in our relationships with one another. But the idea is also to be expanding our networks and introducing ourselves to new people as we're out there and to be engaged in what Andy called a relevant way in our city, right here where God has placed us, exercising this idea of brotherly love. We're to be a blessing. We're called to be a blessing by exercising brotherly love. We're called to be a blessing, fourthly, by having a tender heart. You read the scriptures and you see evidence of people who had a hard heart or a hardened heart. The one that comes to mind most clearly to me is Pharaoh. Remember that story? 
when the nation of Israel was down in Egypt and God sent Moses to Pharaoh to tell him to let his people go, over and over again it said that Pharaoh hardened his heart. He did that a few times. And then the text starts to say that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So if we harden our own hearts long enough, God finally just says, all right, have it your way. Your heart's going to be hard. But that's not what we're called to here and to live this life within the church of righteousness. We are called to have a tender heart, which is the opposite of a hardened heart. Listen to Ephesians 4, beginning at verse 17. Ephesians 4, beginning at 17, Paul says this, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through the deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So there's a hardness of heart that we become delivered from when God moves in and transfers us out of the darkness. But there's an ongoing hardness of heart that we must fight against that Paul here in Ephesians says is like a coat that we need to take off. It's a daily decision to take that coat off, the old man, the old way of thinking, the old hardened and calloused heart that is only given over to depravity that only seeks to fulfill the sensual desires of the self. We're to take that coat off and we're to put on the new man, the new coat, which is Christ in the fullness of his righteousness. The moment we trust Jesus Christ for salvation, his righteousness is imputed to us. It's declared unto us and it is the truth of our standing. But as we go through this life, there is a moment-by-moment, day-by-day process called sanctification where we grow actually in the attitude of our hearts and our mind being more and more in line with that truth of our standing in Christ, of righteousness. And one aspect of that is that we have a heart that becomes more and more tender. And if we have a tender heart, it's going to be that much easier to be sympathetic with people to rejoice with them even if we are in a personal season of grieving, or to grieve or weep with them even if we are in a personal season of rejoicing. If we have a tender heart toward one another, if we bless one another in that way, that's when we're fulfilling this calling that God puts on us. Lastly, we're to have a humble mind. Humility is the opposite of pride. Pride is the essence of sin. And what Peter is calling his readers to here by telling them that they're to have a humble mind is about as countercultural a command as they could have received. They lived in a culture where every personal interaction on the street was all about gaining face at the expense of another. It was all about exalting themselves and gaining honor at the cost of somebody else's honor. So to exercise a humble mind would be to admit defeat as soon as you hit the street. 
That is something that culture did not value at all. But that is exactly the kind of thing that God is calling us to fulfill as Christians. We're to have a humble mind. We're to recognize that we might be wrong. We don't know the best way all the time. And we are to defer to others. It's a radical, radical shift. Listen to Proverbs 29, verse 23. Proverbs 29, 23 says this, One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit, in other words, he who is humble, will obtain honor. So in this culture, it was those who were prideful and did a good enough job of defending their self that they gained honor. But in God's economy, it's those who are lowly in spirit who will obtain the honor. So we are called as a people in the church to to live a life of blessing to others by having a humble mind. Barry Corey has written a little bit about this in one of his books. It's his recent book called uh, Love Kindness. And I have a quote here that I'd like us to read. He says, Followers of Jesus are being observed more than ever by an increasingly polarized society and skeptical media, a cynical entertainment industry, and a contrarian academy. Some of this is deserved. Some of this is grossly unfair. Still, when we cease to proclaim Christ and how we live, we profane Christ to those who watch. Maybe it's how we steward our money. Hoarding rather than living generously. Maybe we drive through poverty-stricken neighborhoods on the way to our vocational calling, oblivious to the plight of those who live nearby. Maybe we talk about racial reconciliation in biblical terms, but don't care about building genuine relationships with those whose stories are different from ours. The gospel calls us to enter one another's stories, like Jesus, so that in humility you value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. This is what we're called to. We're called to have a humble mind. We're called to live genuine lives where we actually profess with our mouths and back it up with our attitudes of our mind and the actions of our hands. We back it up with where we allow our feet to take us. We back it up with the way that we steward the resources that God has entrusted to us for the good of a brother or a sister or a one who is wayward out there, still running in rebellion against God. To what have we been called? We've been called to live a life of blessing, to bless others, to set our needs and our preferences aside, and to set the interests of others above our own. So how are we doing at fulfilling this calling? How are we doing at fulfilling this calling as a church? How are you doing at fulfilling this calling as an individual member of this church? Do you notice how each of these items on this list speaks to the heart and to the mind? And as they speak to the heart and the mind, they assume a level of relationship or a level of interaction with others. These things, having unity and sympathy and love and tenderness in our heart and humility in our mind, all have to do with interacting with one another. One another within the church. When you look at me, can you tell what the position of my heart or my mind is? 
How do, we, how do we tell that? How can we judge what the position of a person's heart or his mind is? Ashley says, by their actions. Oh, well, my mom told me that. <laughs> <laughs> well, your mom's a wise woman, because that's true, right? Yeah, we, we know, we can see the posture of a person's heart or, or the mindset that they have by the things that their hands do. Attitude even comes out in the way that we interact with people. By the words of our mouths, by the work of our hands, those are the things that, that betray the position of our heart. They either testify to it being in a good position or they testify to it still being in the depths of depravity or somewhere in between. So when no one is listening, who or what do your words exalt? When you think nobody is listening, when you are in the quiet of your backyard and you stub your toe, or when you are in the quiet of your own house and you get bad news on the phone, what, where, where does the thought of your mind go? What are the words that come out of your mouth? What, what kind of a witness are they, build, are they testifying? Are they building others up? Or are they seeking to exalt you? Are they seeking to exalt the self? So we've been called to live a life of righteousness that blesses others. And we're, this is what it's to characterize the church as we look inward as these five things. But now look at verse 9. Back in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called. We're not to return evil for evil. I think what Peter's getting at here is evil deeds. When somebody does an evil deed against you, don't turn around and pay that same evil deed back or a different one. Don't try to one-up another person in evil deeds. That only escalates the conflict. We're not to live that way. We're not to return reviling with reviling. Reviling, that, that's evil speech, right? That's somebody slandering you, uh, cutting you down with their words, saying things that are not true about you, even though they might have a hint or a flavor of truth because they speak toward maybe what you sense as an inadequacy. But we are not to return reviling with reviling speech. That's not what we are called to do. Now, is this in pertaining to uh, individuals of the church in relation to people outside the church? Certainly. But I think it also pertains to individuals within the church because there's still sin that ha is having its way within the church, right? And we might find that we, within the church family, find ourselves in these, one of these opportunities where somebody does an evil deed, either intentionally or unintentionally, and we get mud on our face as a result of that. How will we respond? Our calling is to live a life of righteousness that doesn't return evil for evil, but when we are met with evil or met with reviling, we instead return a blessing. The blessing is, is that we actually reach out and call out to God and invoke His favor on them even though what we might probably feel like we want in our heart more than anything is to get even or to justify or you name your motivation. 
But what we're called to here, according to 1 Peter, is we are called to repay evil. We are called to repay reviling with a blessing. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And people of faith who have their hope set on that recognize that one day every wrong will be made right by the judge of heaven and earth. And that that is not our job. It's not our job to get justice on this earth for ourselves or for somebody else. It's our job to be a blessing. It's our job to return these things, invoking divine favor upon these people, even though they're exercising evil, evil deeds or evil speech. This is the essence of righteous living. That's how God interacts in the world. And the word used here for blessing is our root word for the English word eulogy. We're literally to speak well of somebody, to speak a blessing over somebody in these uh, situations, in these circumstances. And it is hard work. It, it is hard work. Think back on your week. Maybe you at work had somebody exercise evil against you. Or maybe there's conflict going on in your family and there are all sorts of hurtful words flying back and forth. Just think about your life. Where is it that you feel evil most keenly? It's a tall order to return that with a blessing, isn't it? To actually ask God to forgive that person and ask God to work good in that person's life. That's a tall order. It can feel to us like all give and no take. And if you're like me, you ask, okay, Lord, what's in this for me? This sounds like it's going to cost me a lot. What's in it for me? Which ultimately comes back to our second question. Why should I strive to fulfill this calling? Why should I work hard? Why should I be willing to pay the cost of being a blessing to people within the church by exercising these five things on this list, a humble mind and a tender heart? Why should I be willing to do that? But more importantly, why should I be willing to, when somebody meets evil out to me, why should I be willing to return that with a blessing? What is my motivation in that? Well, the answer is this. When we bless others, God takes notice and He returns a blessing to us. Now, when you think about that and when you first hear that, that sounds like it, it sounds like works righteousness, really, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about people who are made righteous, declared righteous in Christ on the basis of faith, but there's an ongoing working out of that righteousness that Peter is calling us here to, that God is calling us here through his servant Peter, that means when we return a blessing, God takes notice. And he prepares to bless us as well. Look with me at verses 10 through 12. Well, let's back up and look at 9 one more time. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. So we are to do this. We are to live a life of righteousness that is a blessing to others within the church, that is a blessing to others outside the church, 
Because when we do, we hold God's attention. And He hears our prayer. That's the means by which we obtain a blessing. Now this word that is translated in in the ESV here as obtain is also uh, translated differently in the NAS version or the NIV. It's It's translated there as inherit, which I think is a little bit more accurate to what what we're trying to understand here. So obtain has the flavor, at least in my mind, of of striving towards something and earning it and gaining it. That's not, I think, the idea. I think the idea is to inherit it, where nobody earns anything in an inheritance. Right? My parents have a will. and My name is written in that will. I have an inheritance through them. I didn't choose my parents. I was born to them totally outside of my control. And whatever inheritance is mine because I'm a Haugen is mine not because of what I have done. It's mine because of who has made me. It's it's mine because of what God has done to place me in that family. So there's not an earning in it. So does that mean that behavior doesn't matter? No. Because I'm pretty sure that I could start acting toward my parents in a way that doesn't honor them to the degree that they might eventually write me out of the will. (laughs) This analogy obviously breaks down because we're talking about people in Christ and that, that is secure. So you will never lose your salvation by not fulfilling this calling. But what I'm saying is, is you refrain from receiving subsequent blessings on this earth by not fulfilling this calling, by not striving to fulfill this calling. Our motivation to be willing to repay evil with a blessing is because when we do that, God notices us and He pours out blessings to us in this earth, in this life, ultimately in eternity, but also in this life. And that's not a foreign concept to Peter thus far in this book either. Consider chapter 1, verse 8. He says this, Though you have not seen him, speaking of Jesus, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So we don't see him, but we believe in him on this earth. We trust him now. And the fruit of that is we rejoice with joy that's inexpressible right now on this earth. Verse 9 He goes on and he says, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. There's a earthly dimension to the salvation of our souls that will be, it's already true, it will be made even more true as we enter into eternity. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. Peter says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. So when we long for the Word, when we long for the pure spiritual milk, we get returned, rewarded, blessed in this life by growing. We spiritually grow when we long for that milk. Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the Word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. So when a wife submits herself to a husband, even an unbelieving husband, God sometimes returns a blessing with that, and that husband can come to faith. It's not a guarantee, but he can tend to work in that way. 
There are things that we do to live a righteous life on this earth that are rewarded with blessing on this earth. And chapter 3, verse 7, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So husbands, when we live with our wives in an understanding way, the earthly blessing, the earthly result of living that righteous life is our prayers are not hindered. So Peter's established that there is a relationship between the way we live as Christians, the way we mete out blessing to others here on this earth, that ends up being rewarded by God through blessing here on this earth. This blessing is coming to us ultimately in eternity, but also now on this earth. Listen to Wayne Grudem as he talks about this passage. He says this. He says, verses 8 through 12, Therefore teach that one proper motive for righteous living is the knowledge that such conduct will bring blessings from God in this life. These may take different forms, but in view of the quotation from Psalm 34, they may be expected to include loving life, seeing good days, having God's eyes upon us to care for our needs, and having His ears open to hear and answer our prayers. Nevertheless, in the larger context of the whole of 1 Peter, such blessings do not include freedom from opposition or suffering. The blessings of the New Testament age are generally more spiritual, psychological, and interpersonal, and less material or physical than in the Old Testament. So what we're talking about here is not a works righteousness. It's also not a prosperity gospel. We are not saying if you live a righteous life now, you will have your best life now. We're saying if you live a righteous life now, you will have your blessed life now. God will be with you. He's not going to always deliver you from the hardship, but he'll be with you in this difficulty. Look at 1 Peter 4, 14. He says, if you are insulted in the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So if in the course of your life of being a faithful witness, a faithful disciple to Christ, you become insulted for bearing the name of Christ, he says you are blessed. In other words, you will have the spirit of glory and God resting upon you there in that moment. There will be an awareness of God's presence that will encourage you and enable you even when people are standing against you because you bear the name of Christ. These blessings that we're talking about are are earthly, they're spiritual, they're psychological, they are meant for our encouragement. It's not the prosperity gospel. And this gets messy. We're called to live this sort of a life out as we seek to obtain this blessing from God. But it gets messy because to some degree, most of us live a lie. You might not be in Christ, but you live as though you are in Christ. And to that degree, you're deceiving yourselves and the people around you. You're living a lie. Or on the other side, maybe you are in Christ. You're living in the light But there's certain aspects of your life where you still are walking in darkness because there's an ongoing love for the darkness. We know that struggle as we seek to grow in Christ. There's a level of disingenuine living even when we're in Christ. Now, when I was 
in junior high, I was a pretty good student. I, I didn't have to study much to get fairly decent grades. But it didn't take me long to recognize that the cool kids I wanted to hang out with gave me a lot more attention when my grades were bad. So my freshman year, I would sit in science class and take that test knowing the answers, but if I knew the answer was A, I'd write down C. And if I knew the answer was C, I'd write down D. Because when I bombed that test even worse than the kids that I wanted to hang out with, I got their attention. I was living a lie. How messed up is that? Thank God I got rid of that school and started a whole new life my sophomore year where it was actually cool to be a good student and I could live <laughs> genuinely. But to what degree are we in Christ or in the church living a lie? To what degree are we not walking in the fullness of our identity? Our identity in Christ is righteousness to the nth degree. To what degree is our walk on this earth bearing testimony to our identity in Christ? That's what we're called to. And when we live in this way, God's eyes are on us. Look at verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer. We have God's attention when we live this way. And there's a theme here in 1 Peter about the relationship between righteous living and the effectiveness of prayers. 1 Peter 3.7 is the one we just made reference to where husbands are to live in an understanding way with their wives, and when they do, their prayers are not hindered. So there's a way we can live life that leads toward our prayers being answered or our prayers not being answered, being hindered in some way. 1 Peter 4.7, Peter says this, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. We're to live a self-controlled life, which is a righteous life. Self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit. We're to live a sober-minded life for the sake of our prayers. When we walk in this righteousness, when we live a life of blessing that's characterized by holiness, we are living in a manner that's true to our identity and in a manner that God takes notice and He hears and answers our prayers. And why is it that He takes notice when we live a righteous life? It's the same thing that the prophet Isaiah told Israel when he said this. This is Isaiah 1, beginning at verse 14. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. There is something about God's economy where sin... Um, blinds his eyes toward our appeal. He chooses not to hear our prayers when we're hindered by sin. That's why living a holy life on this earth in Christ matters. It doesn't contribute to earning favor with God. It contributes toward living a blessed life. You want to live a blessed life? You want to know good days? 
Live in holiness. Strive to live increasingly in holiness. For when we do, God pays attention. And He longs to bless His people who are living according to the identity that is theirs by His adoption into His family. He longs to bless us. And He pays attention to our prayers when we strive to walk in this holiness and to live a life of blessing. So what is it that you've been called to? You've been called to live a life of righteousness. You've been called to live a blessing, to be a blessing to people, both inside the church and outside the church, never returning evil for evil. And why should we do it? Because when we do it, God pays attention, and He longs to lavish blessings on us right here. He's promised ultimate fulfillment in eternity, but He brings partial fulfillment to that right here, in our joys, right here in our sorrows. So let's take some time and examine our lives and ask ourselves, how are we doing at fulfilling this calling that belongs to all of us? How are we doing at that? Just take some time with the Lord, and in a couple of minutes, I'll close us in prayer, and then Kenny will come up and lead us in a song. Father, we worship you and we praise you for the grace that is ours in Christ. We praise you that you've declared us wholly righteous on the basis of our faith in the perfect person and work of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that each one of us, Lord, would understand and comprehend and, and strive to fulfill this calling to live a life of righteousness, of holiness, that, that's characterized by being a blessing, that's characterized by humility and sympathy and brotherly love and service, Lord. Help that to be increasingly true of us as individuals, but help us to that to be increasingly true of us as a congregation. And Lord, I pray that we'd be motivated to receive more of your blessings as we seek to strive to fulfill this calling. We praise you for these truths. We praise you, Lord, for your spirit that causes them to, to land on our hearts as truth. And we pray that you'd receive much glory as fruit is born according to these truths. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.